0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of a vision for you. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. Today is Sunday, April 19, 2015. The share ID number for Friday, April 17th, is 7484. That's 7484. This morning, a vision for you presents chapter two: There is a solution. Chapter 2, found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, shouts the good news. There is help. There is hope. There is a way out. Chapter 2, There is a Solution, brings into sharp focus our powerlessness over the merciless obsession and our need for a relationship with a higher power as our defense against the first bite. Joining us this morning to speak on Chapter 2 is Harlan a recovered compulsive overeater from Phoenix, Arizona. Harlan is dedicated to living and teaching the 12 steps of recovery. His experience and teaching of the big book illuminates a path from the dark world of compulsive overeating to a life of peace, purpose, and fulfillment. Welcome to you, Harlan.
1: Welcome, Leah. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so honored to be here with all of you this morning. And this morning, we're going to talk about Chapter 2, There is a Solution. And we're going to take a look at the title of the chapter first before we do anything. And we're going to see that there is a solution. There is a solution, means there's one solution. And you hear that in OA, for as many people as there are in OA, there are many different types of solutions And the title and the content of this chapter speak to the fact that that is not true. The the solution to compulsive overeating is in the big book. And in the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth describes for us several different types of drinkers. But if I am a compulsive overeater, if I am a true alcoholic, and what that means is that I have a allergy, an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind that drives me into the food irresistibly, then there is only one solution. And the solution is in the steps, and the solution is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The second way to look at the title of the chapter, which makes it very, very good news, is by putting the emphasis on is, there is a solution which means I don't have to live in the morass of self-pity. I don't have to live in the intense pain of the food, that there is a way out for me, which I never saw. And I knocked on every door, as many of you have. Many of you who are listening both now on the phone and on the recording, we have tried everything from pills to shots to having our jaws wired shut to having staples put in our ears to... Surgeries, drastic surgeries, all these various methods and and dieting things that we've done to try to control this illness. No, no, no. We are emancipated from that. There is a solution, and it is right here in the big book. And this morning, what we're going to do in this chapter is we're going to talk about the two overeaters anonymouses that exist. There's the Overeaters Anonymous program which exists in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning at first about the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And both have their place because in my life, I never really believed that there were other people who thought about food like I did, who behaved around food like I did, and who were affected by the food like I was. And one of the jobs of my ego is to make me feel different. And I think that what I've observed over my 36 years in the Old Readers Anonymous program is that people who do not recover have a theme that goes through their mind that said, you don't understand, my case is different. You don't understand, my case is different. They keep repeating that to themselves. And the ego keeps culling them out from the group. So let's take a look at chapter two, page 17, and let's see where we go in the fellowship, the comfort of the fellowship, the language of the heart that we're going to be talking about this morning, and then we're going to be talking about step two, and we're going to also see some of the history of step two at the end of the chapter. So let's take a look. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. So we're not going to just be concentrating on Bill's story as we did in the chapter before. We are now going to open that up to thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. So that gives me even more hope that there is a solution for me. Nearly all have recovered. That's a beautiful promise. Don't ignore it. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans. Now, obviously, The book was written in 36 and 37, and it was published on April 10, 1939. And if the book was written today, it would obviously include We Are Average Citizens of the World, because Overeaters Anonymous, as it sits today, exists in uh, 60 countries. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. And if you take a look at the people that you know in Overeaters Anonymous, and you took a cross-section of the people listening on the phone here this morning, you would probably find that there are people who really normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like passengers of a, we are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. And when I read that I think about the Titanic and I think about the people in steerage. The people who are well below deck, the people who probably never wore a suit and a tie unless somebody died or was getting married or maybe they were Jewish, they had to go to a bar mitzvah or something or a christening or something, but they were working people. They were people who were just getting across the ocean in the cheapest way that they possibly could. And then if they had a little more money, they could go up a deck or two. And if, Excuse me. If they had a little more money, they could go up a deck or two from that. And then finally, finally, you get to first class, which is the best of everything, the best food, the best accommodation. They have a a room that looks out over the ocean. They have the finest of everything. And then you have the captain's table. And in order to sit at the captain's table in those days, you had to be the right kind of money. You had to have old, old money and you had to be the right race, and you had to be the right religion, and you had to have the right everything. Now that ship takes a tumble and it hits that iceberg, and when these guys, when their butts hit that freezing cold Atlantic water, they were not asking each other for financial statements. They were not worried about who was wearing brogans or overalls or who was wearing tuxedos. All they had in their mind was a question. How are we going to work together to save ourselves? And there was created a democracy, and it did pervade from steerage to captain's table. So continuing, it says, unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. Now, there are people in my life that I have known, I'm going to be 61 years old soon in May, there are people that I have known that I talk to every single day of my life, I'm very lucky in this respect, that I have gone through grammar school with and high school with and in some cases college with and we work the same job. I have known these people my entire life. I do not recall vividly a time when I did not know them. And many of you, many of you, and I hope that some of you will come to the Vision for You convention in October so I can actually meet some of you, but many of you I have never met in my entire life. When I hear your voice on the telephone, I know that I can understand you and you can understand me in a way they will never understand me. It's 5.39 here in the morning in Scottsdale, Arizona, and they cannot imagine for the life of them why I am sitting in my living room talking on the telephone and not sleeping or watching ESPN or doing whatever. They cannot imagine it because they do not have the ability to speak or understand the language of the heart. That you can understand me in my heart, in my soul. And I'll teach you a Yiddish word this morning, in my gedera, my guts, my neshuma, my holiness. You get it and I get it with you. We understand the food. We understand the fears, the selfishness, the anger the self-seeking and the dishonesty, the buildup of emotions, which drives us into the food, and we understand why these things are vital to our survival. But God didn't just give us a problem. Let's continue on page 17. It says the tremendous fact, bottom of 17, the tremendous fact for every one of us, not some of us, every one of us, is that we have discovered a common solution so not only does God give us this horrible problem that, that, that separates us from the life we think we should have, not only does this illness drag us through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, we now have a common solution. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. And if some of you have heard me on this line before, or some of you may have heard me at at retreats or conventions, this is something I say all the time. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. And that's why that word action is so important. There's no chapter in this book that says into thinking. There's no chapter in this book that says into meeting. There is a chapter into action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Page 18. Now, I have a very good friend who lives in Santa Monica, California, and he is a wonderful guy, and he, like I, do big book studies around the country. He walks into his big book study and often says to people, how many of you are compulsive overeaters and everybody's hand shoots up? And then he asks another question. He says, how many of you are ashamed of it? And a lot of hands stay up. I want to tell you this morning, put your hand down. You didn't cause this. You can't control this, and you can't cure this. This is an illness. Top of 18, it says an illness of this sort, and we have come to believe it an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt but not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. That word annihilation, it's more than obliterated, it's more than destroyed, it's more than cut short, annihilation, every dream that I dreamed in my life, every aspiration that I had in my life was annihilated in my desire to eat or not eat. I spent my entire life either actively eating or actively not eating. I never had a moment's peace. The dreams that I had of career, the dreams that I had of dating, of girls, of of success, of looking good. I didn't have fancy dreams necessarily. I may have had some, but I'll tell you one of my dreams and maybe you can share it with yourself too. I had a dream of getting up in the morning and looking like the other people in my life. I had a dream of getting up in the morning and getting out of bed and being grateful to be alive and putting on a pair of pants that I could buy off the rack and a shirt that I could buy off the rack and walk out of my house and look like a normal man. But I couldn't have that dream until I worked these steps. Until I worked these steps, these dreams were unattainable. You didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. This is not your fault. But not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. So you think about your life, and let's continue with this, and let the big book guide us through it brings misunderstanding, not our misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of others toward us. Fierce resentment. People had a lot of resentment against me for this. They just couldn't understand, going back to misunderstanding, because I'm in a time of misunderstanding and fierce resentment. They couldn't understand why in other areas of my life, I seemed like I had a reasonable uh, intelligence quotient. But when it came to Kit Kat bars, when it came to Doritos, when it came to ice cream, I must be stupid because there I was eating ice cream again in the face of every reason in the world not to. They would watch me crying because they all had dates for Saturday night. They had dates for homecoming. They had dates for the dance. They were going with girls. They were doing the things that boys do. And I'd be boo-hooing about not being able to do any of those things And five seconds later, there I was, shoving a corn dog in my mouth. And they couldn't understand why anybody would do that. But you get it. You get it. Thank God I have a place to go. Financial insecurity. I've been a commissioned salesperson my entire life, and I could never make ends meet because my brain and my body were totally occupied with the obsession to eat or not eat, eat or not eat. Every diet I was on brought about pain. Every time I went off my diet brought about pain. I had no brain power left with which to tackle problems. I had no brain power left with which to advance my career. I was stuck. Because all I could keep doing was eating and not eating, eating and not eating. Disgusted friends. I had disgusted friends. And employers. I've been told right to my face many times, we'd like to promote you, but we can't. You look you look terrible. You're not the image that we want to portray. You're not somebody that we want to put in the window. If you lose weight, we'll, we'll talk about it. Warp lies of blameless children. When I was lucky enough to have my daughter when she was born I was in relapse I have 16 years of freedom from food and she's going to be 21 in December and I should have if I'm lucky enough I'll have 17 years in December of abstinence so you do the math I didn't get in recovery until she was 4 and I was in relapse and she was not quite 2 years old And we were living in Eugene, Oregon at that time. I went from Chicago to Oregon and Oregon to Arizona. Only some sort of note from God personally would get me out of Arizona now. But the bottom line is we were living in Eugene, Oregon at that time. And it was a Sunday, just like it is this morning. And my ex-wife was standing back to back with my diapered baby, 19 months old at the time. And... My ex-wife was putting away a massive shot that she had just done of food and things that we needed. And my daughter, in her diaper, she picked her little hand up and she opened the refrigerator door just about two inches and she turned her little head to my ex-wife and said, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. If looks could kill, I would have been vaporized on the spot. This was the message I was carrying to that little baby. Maybe she wasn't disgusted with me. Maybe she wasn't angry at me. But this was what I was doing to this little baby who I love more than my next breath of air. Sad wives and parents, anyone can increase the list. We hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or who may be affected. There are many. Highly competent psychiatrists have dealt with us, who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without reserve. Now, I remember very distinctly, I have very vivid memories of this. When I was about four or five years old, people started screaming at my mother and father about how much I was eating and how fat I was getting. And when I got to be a little older, maybe six, they started screaming directly at me. And they scared me. And I often peed my pants and I would cry sometimes. They would yell at me. Adults would scream at me and kids would be unmerciful to me. But the adults on a couple of occasions hit me. But mostly they would scream at me. And what they didn't understand is that more than anything, I wanted to acquiesce to their demands. I wanted to be the little boy that they wanted me to be. And what they didn't understand is that I wasn't doing this because I was stupid. And I wasn't doing this to get at anybody. And I wasn't doing this because I had no respect for my parents or myself. I was doing it because I couldn't stop doing it. I was doing it for reasons that I myself did not understand. And there was nothing I wouldn't have done to be the little boy they wanted me to be. And so what I learned to do was to shut down emotionally and to just quiet down emotionally and let myself weather the storm of their yelling and screaming and I knew that eventually I could wear them down by just standing there or just sitting there. And that's what I learned to do because I didn't know the answer to their question. I only could offer up a lame, I'm hungry, or I really like these, or I'm sorry, or I forgot that I ate before. Those were lame excuses. And what I knew at a very early age of four or five is that there are people like my parents who understand about the food and there are people 99% of the human race that does not. And I couldn't explain to them what I was going through. But what I wanted to tell them, but I didn't dare, was the second most important thing in my life was being thin. But the first most important thing in my life was getting more chocolate chip cookies Because what I didn't understand was the only way I was going to cut the pain of the embarrassment and the shame and the humiliation that you have just put me through, sir or ma'am, is to eat more chocolate chip cookies. To do the very thing that I do not want to do to dull that pain. But I wasn't conscious of that at that time. But I knew it worked. I didn't understand why it worked, but I knew it worked. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. That's why I need a place to go, and it's called Overeaters Anonymous. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, the one in the book, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours until such an understanding is reached. Little or nothing can be accomplished. (sighs) Excuse me. Let's take a look at 1935, May of 1935, Mother's Day of 1935. What did Bill Wilson bring Dr. Bob that day in the Cyberling Gatehouse? Very little in the way of information. He told him what Silkworth had taught him, about the allergy of the body, and Bob, being a doctor, had not heard such information before. But Dr. Bob was not as impressed with what the information held that Bill was giving him. He was comforted by the identification that Bill brought him. He originally told Ann Smith, his wife, that he would give this joker from New York 15 minutes, and they were going home, and they stayed up there for five hours. Because of information? Hardly. Because Bob had never spoke to a man before in his life that understood his drinking. Now, when Ann Smith finally came up to get him, he said to his wife, Dr. Bob said to his wife, this is the first man that understands about my drinking. Now, why is that funny? Why is that cosmically hysterical? Because Bill Wilson never said one word about Dr. Bob's drinking. He only talked about his drinking. I talk about my eating. I talk about my experience with being overweight, with being a compulsive overeater. And if you can identify with that, then recovery can start to take place because recovery can only take place when the pain of eating overwhelms the fear of letting the food go. However, what's just as important is, is that the person who has recovery begins to tell his story to the person who does not have any recovery. And if you're new on the phone, if you're new to a vision for you, please keep dialing in. We need you and you need us, but we need you more. But what's important is, Is for the person to begin, the the person who's new, to begin taking actions which that person does not yet believe in, but they will begin to take these actions because they seem to work in this other afflicted person. All of us began to take actions which we did not yet believe in, but we took them. Because we were out of ideas. And if you're not out of ideas, you're in trouble. Lose those old ideas. Some of you are going to go back and try them again. Some of you are going to go and retry and retry and retry those old ideas. When you're done with that, excuse me, when you're done with that, we welcome you with open arms. If you're out of ideas and you're listening this morning, welcome. We are here to help you. And in turn, you will help us more. Bottom of 18, that the man who was making the approach has had the same difficulty that he obviously knows what he is talking about, that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect, that he is a man with a real answer, that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. Now, we're going to read a line here on page 19 that is going to blow the doors off some of the things you've been told since you were children. None of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. We feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. If you don't have that sentence highlighted in your book, please find a highlighter and remedy that situation ASAP. Because when you look at this, it says, we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. This is very different than the information you were given at Weight Watchers, at Nutrisystems, at tops, at Metafast, at Jenny Craig. You were given information that once you got down to a certain weight, you would be fixed, cured, recovered, whatever it is you want to use as a word, that you could ride your bike on the beach too, that you could eat little pieces of cake and little pizzas and little this, you could eat your food and you'd be on maintenance. No way, or you wouldn't be on the phone here this morning. The elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Now, some of you have heard me in the past have heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. This may be the most important thing I say this morning to anyone who's new. Food is not the problem. If you are a compulsive overeater, food is never the problem. Food is the answer to the problem. What is the problem? All your life, you may have said to yourself, If I could just get a handle on the food, I'd weigh less. And if I weigh less, I'd be fine. Not the case. Because many of us, many of us have weighed less. Many of us have successfully dieted in the past. And that feels horrible. Because if food is the answer to the problem, what is the problem and what causes the problem? The problem is the intense, unbearable, unrelenting, unmerciful pain that comes about in our soul as the result of not eating. That when we're not eating, Dr. Silkworth tells us that we're restless, irritable, and discontented. Throw in angry, scared to death, full of shame, guilt, remorse, horror, full of jealousy, all these various things Drive us into the food because the food becomes the answer. What is what causes the pain? The buildup of emotions. All human beings. The key word there is all. All human beings have emotions. All human beings have happiness, sadness, fear, jealousy, guilt, shame, remorse. All human beings have these emotions. In a normal human being, what they can do to dissipate the buildup of these emotions is they can go to the gym. They can walk the dog. They can kiss their wife or their husband. They can do a crossword puzzle. Whatever it is, they can dissipate these emotions quite nicely and easily, and they're they're fine. Not so with us. When these emotions build and build and build and build, what happens is the mental twist starts to take over and says, wait a minute, Harlan doesn't feel very good. He's full of guilt. He's full of shame. He's full of remorse. He's jealous of these guys that seem to fall backwards into girls and money and God knows what. I know how to make him feel better. I'll have him go eat a Kit Kat bar. And the intelligent part of my brain says, oh, no, we're not going to eat that Kit Kat bar. We want to look like the other boys. We want to know what it's like to walk down the street and look like the other guys. And the emotional part of the brain says, eat the damn Kit Kat bar. We want to feel better right now. Now, listen to this because it's important. Anytime there is a conflict between the emotional part of the brain and the intelligent part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain will win every time. And the mental twist drives me into a Kit Kat bar. And it convinces me I deserve a Kit Kat bar. It convinces me that one Kit Kat bar couldn't hurt anybody. And so I eat one Kit Kat bar. Now there's the other part of this illness, the vicious physical allergy. The craving is set up by the Kit Kat bar and I eat two and I eat three. And the next thing you know, I've eaten many, many Kit Kat bars and gallons of ice cream and pounds of Doritos and I wake up a month later, two months later, three months later significantly heavier than I've ever been in my entire life because of the buildup of emotions that started the train going. And this line will dispel the myth that if you just lost weight, your life would be perfect. And every time you dressed in the morning, there'd be little squirrels and birds, and they would would help you dress, and there'd be music playing in the background. No, no. Let's continue because I'm, I'm already behind schedule. <laughs> Sorry, Leah. Okay, a much more important demonstration of our principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. Lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. All of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we are going to describe. A few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the work. What is this paragraph telling me? I have to put down the food. It's a beginning, but I have to work the steps. And how many of the groups that you go to, both OA and some of the offshoot groups, the offshoot groups I think are worse than OA in this respect. They get welded to the first half of the first step, and it becomes incessantly about the food. The food, the food, the food. And people fail because they can't stay on a diet. All they've done in, in a lot of these groups, in OA or in the offshoot groups, is they have just replaced the dieting they were doing down the street with the dieting that they're now doing in OA, and they wonder why they fail. I must perfect and enlarge my spiritual life because the solution to this, and that's the title of the chapter, is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps what will the spiritual awakening do? It will dissipate the level of those emotions and I will not see the need to eat the food. That's important too. They will save my brain and I will feel better. I will already feel better when I work the steps and my brain will not see the need to drive me into the food. And the process of bringing a higher power into your life, into your heart, to dissipate the level of these emotions, which sets the train in in, in, in motion, is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting what the food will do for you with what the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps will do for you, and God will do for you slowly what the food did for you instantly with none of the devastating side effects. There is a solution, and it ties right into the title of the chapter. If we keep on going the way we, excuse me, if we keep, On the way we are going, there is little doubt that much good will result. But the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. Those of us who live in large cities are overcome by the reflection that close by hundreds are dropping into oblivion every day. Many could recover if they had the opportunity we have enjoyed. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? What can I do today to draw more people into Overeaters Anonymous? What can I do today to attract people? overeaters overeaters anonymous. I can recover, I can recover, and I can recover. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. If you're working the steps, you're carrying the message. If you're not, you're spreading the disease. It's that simple. It's that clear cut. We have concluded to publish an anonymous volume, setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall bring to the task our combined experience and knowledge. This should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with a drinking problem. Of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions, our attitudes, which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Now, this is something that is going to permeate throughout the book. Dr. Silkworth calls this an altruistic movement. Bill Wilson in his story says, when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. Dispersed through this book are things like helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. On page 77, it tells me everything and anything I would ever need to know about my life. It tells me why I was born. It tells me on the top of page 77, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Now on page 93, it says, to be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. And all through this book, it is going to remind me I've got to get out of myself. When I look to add to a situation through service, I feel better. I'm further away from food and closer to God. When I look at a situation for what I'm going to take out of it, I'm closer to food and further away from God. Get out of yourself. Get out of yourself is the message I keep hearing in this wonderful book. You may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. Now, this ties in to the forward to the first edition, and it ties into the thesis line of the big book on page 45. I won't go into it in detail because we haven't the time. I've got to get moving here. I'm telling myself, keep going, keep going, but I can't resist this. On page XIII, which is 13 in Roman numerals, it says to show other alcoholics Top of the page. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Let's go to page 45, if you can quickly. And on page 45 is the thesis line in the big book. It says, its main object, talking about the book, its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. It says before that sentence, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Are these consistent? You bet they are. And when the big book wants to tell us something, it tells it to us many times, many times. We shall tell you what we have done. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're going to tell you what we have done. That's the influence of Harry Thibault, the psychiatrist. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. Oh, she's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is all lit up again. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have the certain type of hard drinker. He may have have it badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. But this is a big one here. What about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. That's the allergy. That's the mental twist that drives you into the first drink and the allergy that drives you into the 20th drink. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. Now let's take a look at that because it's not the first time we've seen it. What happens in a person when an important decision must be made or an engagement kept? What is going on? They have the buildup of emotions, probably fear, probably selfishness. Fear and 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 selfishness are what? They're character defects, but they're also emotions. And when those emotions build and build and build, The mental twist says, take a drink. The intelligent part of the brain says, no way, I don't want to miss the meeting. And we've already covered this, but every time the emotional part of the brain conflicts with the intelligent part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain will win every single time. And what happens when they take the first drink? Convinced that they're only going to have one, they trigger the allergy and the whole thing blows up in their face. He is often back to 21. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitude, and he has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around, yet early next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all about it, all over his house. To be certain, no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, not better or worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then, <clears throat> excuse me. then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary but this description should identify him roughly. Why does he behave like this? If Hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering, and humiliation. Why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? And we've already covered that because your brain is wired differently when those emotions build up Your mental twist is going to take over and it is going to convince you that one cupcake is fine, that all you're going to have this time is one. You deserve that cupcake. She's not going to treat you that way. They're not going to talk to you that way. They're not going to make you wait. They're not going to exclude you. Screw them if they don't like the fact that you're heavy. You're going to eat a cupcake and you're going to be eating that cupcake while in your mind you're giving the one-finger salute to the people you're mad at. Just like drinking poison waiting for the other person to drop dead. Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, As he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense. The bodily is the allergy. The mental is the effect that the Kit Kat bar or the Dorito or the ice cream gives you. Kit Kat bars give me an instant feeling of, oh, oh, it's just orgasmic. It's just that, feel, that sense of ease and comfort just, just permeates over me in about one second. The only problem is it doesn't last very long. And like eight, eight seconds later, I'm into the rep. Now I've got the guilt, shame, and remorse. <sighs> Excuse me. Sorry. My Fakakta allergies are acting up this morning. Sorry about that. Okay. Which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations may be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Now, if you don't have this next sentence highlighted in your book and tattooed in your brain, I suggest you do both. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. Let's read it again. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. I can't do anything without thinking about it first. I can breathe and my, my blood will circulate and I can digest food and I can you know, do other involuntary things. However, picking up food, picking up this little cup of water next to where I'm talking, I can't do any of those things without thinking about it first. The 12 steps. I'm not going to do anything for your physical allergy. You were born, if you're a compulsive overeater, you were born with that physical allergy, you'll die with that physical allergy. But what we're going to do by the working of the steps is we're going to dissipate down the emotional buildup in the mind, which is setting the terrible cycle in motion. Why haven't I compulsively overeaten in over 16 years? Answer. I don't want to. I already feel better. Let me tell you something. I don't know how many people are on the line right now, but if every one of you was standing in front of my door right now in Arizona, you could not stop me from compulsively overeating. Even if you each brought a herd of wild horses with you, you couldn't stop me because I'm going to get to the food. But I don't want the food, so there's no reason for any of you to be here. If you ask them, page 23. If you ask him why he started on that last gender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he'll laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. We refuse to talk because we can't explain to them what's going on because we don't know it ourselves. We're going to read in the next paragraph that once this malady takes hold, we are a baffled one. We become a baffled one. And you talk about that example of hitting yourself on the head. How many times, how many times had I engaged in binging and I'd be in the bathroom with it running out of me and from both ends. And in a series of split-second decisions, which everyone must be right, or I've got one nasty cleanup on my hands, I am sitting there washing my hands, and the tears are running down my face. And I do not want to live. I want to die. I don't like myself. I don't like the world I was born into. I don't fit into it physically. I don't fit into the world emotionally. I can't get out of my own way. And I have just binged. I have just been sick, physically sick from the food. What do I do after cursing myself? after crying, after changing into my fat pants, which all my pants were fat, but maybe I had one with an elastic waist so I could be more comfortable. What did I do to get relief from this pain, this guilt, and this, this unbelievable emotional buildup? What did I do? I went to the refrigerator, see if there was something I could eat to make me feel better because of the pain I had wrought on myself by eating now, if that isn't insanity, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. I am looking to relieve the pain, the shame, the guilt, and the remorse of eating by eating more food. If I had burned myself, would I throw gas on my foot and light it to alleviate the pain of the burn? Of course not but I ate more food to alleviate the pain of eating too much food. And that means I am bereft of sanity. I am insane. Once in a while, page 23, Leah, I'm going to run over, so I hope you're not going to be mad. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. That is a very, very important concept. I had no more of an idea why I was doing these things than you have why a bird lands on that branch instead of that branch. There is the obsession. What is an obsession? It's a thought which pushes aside all thought to the contrary. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count, and that's why I wanted to die. I got this idea that I was down from the, for the count when I was about 10. Some of you came upon that later in life. I did not want to live in this world. How true this is, few you realize, in a vague way, Their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. Everybody was waiting for Harlan to quote-unquote get it. I get it now. I'll never get it. I get it now. I have to work the steps. There will never be the day when on my own, absent of the steps, absent of recovery, prayer, Absent of the work I do every day, there will never, ever, 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 ever be a day when ice cream has a normal part in my life. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. The tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. The tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Food is not my drug of choice. Food is my drug of no choice. Food is not my drug of choice. Cocaine might be my drug of choice because I've never had cocaine. I've never used it. So I can choose today not not to indulge in it. Gambling could be my drug of choice because I don't gamble. But food, uh-uh. Food is my drug of no choice. Our so-called willpower, back to page 24 at the top, our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. And that's because of the mental twist. The mental twist is something that prevents me from bringing these memories into consciousness. Now, every single one of the people listening on the phone right now has burned themselves when they were very, very young. Maybe you weren't like me. I stuck my hand in a a Sabbath candle. I wanted to see what the wax would, would feel like if I touched it. And I screamed bloody murder. Maybe for you it was a plate, a pot, a pan, a stove, a fireplace. Maybe you touched something that was way, 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 way too hot, and you cried bloody murder. And your brain registered on that day, no matter how young you were, food, excuse me, (laughs) hot, see where my brain goes? Hot equals bad. And every single time you have burned yourself from that day until today has been by mistake. Do you know that I couldn't give you a trillion dollars to stick your hand on a burning log right now? Your brain will not allow you to do that. And yet the food that has mangled you and deformed you physically and has amputated you from every dream you've ever had that was annihilated In the face of your desire to eat, you will eat yet again because you cannot bring into your brain with sufficient force this idea that it will kill you. You can only think about what the food will do for you, the sense of ease and comfort, the effect that Silkworth talks about. You will not bring into your brain what the food will do to you. You can only think about what the food will do for you And that is a part of the illness that's very important. The almost certain consequences, the key word is certain, that that follow taking even a glass of beer. Do not crowd into the mind to deter us if these thoughts occur. They are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. And this is a thing I've said to myself many times. There is the complete failure of any kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You wouldn't go deliberately burn yourself today unless you're mentally ill unless there is something more wrong with you or different or you know wrong with you other than compulsive overeating. And yet time after time, after time after time, I will eat the food that shames me and degradates me and pulls me through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I'm just a person, don't judge me by my fat, don't judge me by my weight, I'm just a person like you, and I wanted all the things you wanted, I wanted love, and I wanted life, and I wanted to be able to run the bases, I wanted to be able to buy my clothes at the the, the trendy shops, I wanted to be able to be thin, and I wanted to, I wanted to have the girls pass me a note, I wanted to have the girls want to kiss me, is that so much to ask out of life? But every one of those dreams went up in smoke because I couldn't put down the Kit Kats and the Tootsie Rolls and all the candy. The alcoholic, page 24, middle of the page. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way? And after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sakes, how did I ever get started again? only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink or what's the use anyhow. And in Bill's story, he walks into a cafe to make a telephone call and he's pounding on the bar asking himself how it happened again. He says, but I might as well get good and drunk this time. And I did. What caused Bill to take the first drink? The mental twist. What caused him to take the eighth drink? The physical allergy. When this sort of thinking, bottom of 24, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual, (sighs) excuse me, I told you about my focaccia allergies here, with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. That means I'm going to need God. I'm going to need a power greater than myself. And unless locked up, may die, or go permanently insane, these stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but cannot. There is a solution. It's a reiteration, obviously, of the title. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires. The key word there is requires for a successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. If you're not convinced of the hopelessness and the futility of life that you are living in the food, we probably are going to lose you. But if you are, we have a solution and we will help you and we will do whatever we can for you. We need you and we love you more than you're aware of. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. Those are the steps. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. There's your second reference to being rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. There's height, depth, width. And then there is the realm, there is the dimension of the spirit. There's the dimension of God. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life and toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. Now, I love reading it that way. Instead of entered into our hearts and lives, I like reading it as lives because I need, and I don't know about you, and I'm not here to edit what you have as a God. I need a living God. What can living gods do that dead gods can't do? They can grow and change and adapt. And my life is a river, and as it goes down, I can't see around the corner. Five years ago, I was a married man living in a big house with a big backyard and a kid. I'm living in a little apartment now. I'm single. You know, I'm I'm living a very different life. Life changes. Life changes in a heartbeat. My dear friend from OA that comes to our meetings at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club was riding down the street just the other day, And some car broadsided her and she's been in a rehab center after being hospitalized. She's got a broken leg and a this and she's got black, she had black eyes and a broken vertebrae. Her number two vertebrae is broken. Life changes, life changes. I need a God that's going to grow and adapt and hold my hand through all of it. I'm too weak. I'm too human to handle any of that myself page twenty five bottom of the page, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there's no middle of the road solution. We were in a positive we were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed it, let me read it right and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives: one was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. I don't have the time to go to page 567 and go through Appendix 2 with you. I'm pushing it as it is. Maybe Leah will have me come back one time and we'll do that, but for right now, we're just going to keep going. Now, we're going to see here the, the real history that we alluded to and, and talked about in Bill's story. We're going to see more of the history of Step 2 we're going to talk about a certain American businessman. And this certain American businessman was a wealthy industrialist from Rhode Island and his name was Roland Hazard. And Roland wanted to be alleviated from his drunken condition. And the art of psychiatry in the early 30s was in its beginning stages, in its infancy. And Roland, through a series of fortunate events of birth, money was not an object for Roland. And he sought out the services of who was at that time the most preeminent psychiatrist in the world. And that man's name was Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud was not able to take Roland. He wasn't accepting any patients at that time. He was full. And Roland said, who is your number one disciple? And he went and he tried to enlist the services of the number two psychiatrist in the world, a guy by the name of Adler. And Adler wasn't taking on any new patients either. And Dr. Jung was the number three psychiatrist in the world at that time. Roland sought him out in Switzerland. Dr. Jung was Swiss, and he lived there. And for one year, from 1933 to 1934, he psychoanalyzed Roland Hazard. In 1934, Roland was given the green light to return to New York to go home by Dr. Jung. Roland, enthused by his successful dieting or his sobriety under the care of Jung, goes home or tries to, but he doesn't make it. He can't even get out of the shipyard. There's a bar there and he gets drunk and he, he can't understand. Now that he understands himself so well, why is he continuing to get drunk? And he goes back to Dr. Jung and he asks Dr. Jung, what am I going to do? So let's let the book tell us the story. A certain, page 26. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Jung. Who prescribed for him though experience had made him skeptical he finished his treatment with unusual confidence his physical and mental condition were unusually good above all he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden strength that relapse was unthinkable nevertheless he was drunk in a short time more baffling still he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall so he returned to this doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was the great physician's opinion. AA didn't exist yet. There was nothing Jung could send Roland to. But Jung broke rank with Freud and Adler in one respect. Freud and Adler believed that all solutions lie within the mind. But Jung broke rank with them. He believed, well, I'm not going to tell you what he believed. I'm going to let the book tell you what he believed. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. There is the answer. Spiritual help. Because, you see, Dr. Jung believed, unlike Adler and Freud, that here and there, there were people who could be changed by a spiritual experience. Is it odd or is it God that Roland got to Jung and not Freud or Adler? Is it odd or is it God? Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Roland is begging Dr. Jung to give him something to hang on to. He doesn't want to die. Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. Now, why did he call it a phenomena? Because he didn't understand it himself and he didn't know how to bring it about. Now, as we progress through this paragraph, Let us take a look at how many times the concept of change is introduced to Roland by Dr. Jung. Because this concept of change is going to be vital to me. Because if I do what I did, I will get what I got. If I keep doing what I'm doing, I'll keep getting what I'm getting. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change. And rearrangements change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, change because they were once but they're not now, are suddenly cast to one side, change. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them, change. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you, change. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. If you're on this phone right now or you're listening on the recording, change is vital to recovery. What must change in recovery? Everything. My attitudes, my everything must change. There are three things that will change right away: my playgrounds, my play toys and my playmates. If I want to hang with my binge buddies, you know, the people that you know and I know that we can eat our heads off with, something is going to have to give. If I keep playing in the playgrounds, the restaurants, the pie house, the donut shop, all the people that give me the warm greetings when I come in to patronize their businesses, I'm going to have to change that or I'm going to die. My playgrounds, my playmates, and my playmates. My playgrounds, playmates, and play toys have got to change everything's got to change are you sitting here without a sponsor are you sitting with a sponsor that you have never recovered with do you need more guidance are you sitting here trying to diet with group support are you fighting this these things must change suddenly magically they are not going to change on their own you've got to make the change and make it today If not you, who? If not now, when? Things have got to change. Some of you are going to call me in the aftermath of this and say, I've been working with my sponsor for five years. I would never let her go, but I'm not in recovery and I've gained a lot of weight. Maybe it's not your sponsor's fault, but something has to change. Something has to change. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, bottom of twenty-seven for he reflected that, after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Again, we don't have the time to go through Appendix 2. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had that extraordinary experience, which, as we have already told you, made him a free man. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. In order for recovery to take place, the pain of the food must outweigh the fear of letting it go. The pain of the food must outweigh, outdo, out overwhelm the fear of letting it go. At some point, you have to drag yourself to that reed, that 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 desperation of drowning men. And if you've ever been underwater just a little bit too long. I assume you didn't drown or you wouldn't be on the phone. But if you've ever been underwater just a little bit too long, boy, that air. Oh, man, you're just, you pop to the surface and you're just exhilarated. That's the kind of desperation I need to recover. Because you let me lay in garbage long enough, it becomes warm and it doesn't smell anymore and it becomes comfortable and I'd rather do anything than change. It's got to happen where the pain of the food must outweigh the fear of letting it go. What seemed at first, page 28 to top, a flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. The distinguished American psychologist William James in his book Varieties of Religious Experience* this is one of the books that Bill and Bob were writing when they were doing the big book, indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator. I love that living creator analogy. With whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Those having religious affiliations will find here you know, nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. We think it no concern of ours. What religious bodies our members identify themselves with as individuals, this should be an entirely personal affair, which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism, as we understand it in a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who were once in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. These give a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages, and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too. I must have this thing. Before I close, I just want to apologize for running over the time, but this is a very important chapter to me, They're not, there's no unimportant chapters, but I encourage every one of you who are listening here, if you're struggling, if you're not struggling, whatever your situation, consider these changes. Understand that there's one solution, a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. If you have a God that you are really unwilling to believe in, you can change that God. You can draw a new concept of a power greater than yourself, which you are willing to believe in, with a little help from your sponsor and a little necessity through pain, you can draw up a God that you are willing to hold hands with as you walk through life. I encourage every one of you who are listening today, whether you're new or you're not new, to join us in that broad highway. If you're struggling, if you're doing a little eating, if you're thinking about doing a little eating, Come on, work these steps. We are here to help you, and there is no greater way of life. And to just conjure up in closing Roseanne's, the title of Roseanne's book, this is, a, this is the greatest way of life there is. It is a life beyond our wildest dreams. Come and join us. And with that, Leia, I will pass. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much, Harlan. We appreciate every minute. Thank you for your thorough, profound, and impactful presentation this morning of Chapter 2. There is a solution. Really appreciate it. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And now we'll open the floor for question and answers. So please, if you have a question, questions only, please, you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself. It's Mary from New Jersey. Hi, Mary. Hey. How are you? Hi, Mary. You? Good morning. Anybody else? Let me just see if sure. who else is on the line. Uh, this is Susan. Susan. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. All right. We'll get back to another invitation in a few minutes. Mary, go ahead. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. Yes. Good morning, Harlan. I was going to call you Roland,
2: <laughs>
3: but Harlan, I can't thank you enough. I listen to you all the time, and um, and as a sister, I love you to pieces. I can't hear you enough. I have learned so much, but there's one thing if you could help me understand. I said, yes, he's on this morning. Now, you would agree with me that the way you're using the word answer and the word solution, I'm hearing you use it the same word. So we know that finding a power greater than ourselves is our solution. Please, Harlan, if you could try to help me, what do you mean when you say, then the food is our answer? You say, I'm going to change it to you're saying food is our solution. There I am still. So I'll explain you it I'll explain to. Help
1: it. You think. <laughs> Food is never the problem. We come in here after dieting, we go to this diet club, we go to that diet club, we join the gym, we go here, we go there. Food is not the problem. It is the answer to the problem. It is the solution to the problem. I'm using answer and solution because I don't want to keep using the same word over and over again. Food puts out the fire. I hope that makes it simple. Food is very successful. At putting out that fire. Where is the fire coming from? The pain. Where does the pain come from? The pain is the pain of not eating. Where does that pain come from? And that pain comes from the buildup of emotions. We do not eat because of any other reason. If you're a compulsive overeater, I mean, obviously, you don't you know, get hungry, but you're eating to put out the fire. The buildup of emotions, happiness, fear. Jealousy, guilt, shame, remorse. All these emotions are building up inside of you. And the mental twist says to the rest of the brain, hey, I got this. Mary, go eat some uh, Kit Kat bars. Mary says, no way I'm eating Kit Kat bars. And the emotional part of the brain where the mental twist is, says to you, eat the Kit Kat bar and you do. Why? Because you are eating that to put out the buildup of emotions because you know in your mind that the food becomes the answer to the problem. Food answers the problem. It gives you that sense of hey, ease and comfort that just comes instantly when you eat ice cream. Oh, that first bite, that first, that first spoonful for a normal eater, or in my case, a shovelful. The first shovelful of ice cream, it just tastes so good. Does it taste good? No. What it, do- it doesn't taste anything. You know what it is? It just puts out the fire. So food is not the problem. Food is the answer to the problem. And the problem is the pain that comes about as a result of not eating. I hope that's But Harlan, could I stop
3: there? Harlan, I understand that as in the past, but you're presenting it to me that that is my problem today. That I completely understand.
1: If you don't work the steps, your emotions will build up. You have to constantly work the steps. If you're eating your abstinent food and you're in recovery and you're working the steps, food is a normal part of a normal person's life. I'm talking about compulsive overeating.
3: So, What I'm saying is when you say food is the answer, what it was before, I would think of food was my answer. It would put it out for a few seconds. You still will. But you're not saying today food is my answer.
1: I don't know where you are in the steps. I don't know where your program is. If you're working the steps and you're having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, then just keep doing that.
3: But when you're saying, I just want to say, when you say food is the answer, it comes across so confusing. I know it was before in that kind of thinking. I understand what I think, what you're trying to say. To and it still will be if there.
1: you don't work okay. the steps. The minute you stop working the steps, the food will become your answer again.
3: Keep
0: working right, the steps. Right, and not a good answer, but I understand. Okay. Thank you okay. very much, Mary. Thank you. Thank you okay. so much. And next Susan, up. your turn. Oh, thank you. Oh, I was just wondering if. This is available as a recording that somebody can call into at any time? Yes, that information will be given at the conclusion, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you very much. Sure. Who else has a question this morning for Harlan related to Chapter Mm -hmm. 2? Isabel. Isabel. Anyone else? Jan. Jan. Anybody else?
1: I must have done a good job of explaining things. Very
0: thorough, very thorough. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) No questions. Okay. Isabel, your turn. Go ahead. Yes.
4: First of all, I wanted to thank you so much for everything. It was so enlightening. Um, I am struggling right now. Uh, I've been abstinent two months, and then I uh, relapsed. uh, no, but I relapsed, and I've been relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. And I found a sponsor at Vision for You, and I called her, and I said, "Can you be my sponsor?" She said, "Yes, but you need to be abstinent for one week before I, we work together." Mm-hmm. And I, I am abstinent one day, and then another mm-hmm. day I, I relapse again. So I say, "What can I do? I don't know what to mm-hmm. do anymore." And I understand everything you say. Makes, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I it's, intellectually I know everything you said,
5: mm-hmm. but
4: I go back to the food. And I have a relationship with God very closely, and I and I don't know I don't know what to do anymore.
1: I would find a sponsor that will take you after about two days of abstinence. The fact that you could the, the the thought that you could stay out of the food for a week on your own is, is absurd. If you could do that, you you know you'd be a miracle. Uh, after about a couple days, I would say about forty eight hours free of the food. You know, two two and a half days tops. Begin working the steps. So start searching out a different sponsor, and you'll get somebody that will take you uh, at an accelerated kind of situation there, and you should be fine if you work the steps. It's a faster process. You know, they didn't tell the guys stay out of the liquor for a week. They told them get a couple of days, and then you will know, we'll, we'll begin.
0: Okay.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Thank you, Isabel.
1: Thank you, Isabel.
0: Jan, you're up. Jan, star one to unmute.
5: Hi, Harlan.
2: Thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, Whenever I hear you, I feel, you know, your pain of your childhood. I had similar pain. And I've been abstinent for a while, um, but I still have the incredible pain of really having so many problems with people throughout my life from the minute I walk out the door until I go to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And um, I know the answer is in the steps. Specifically, what part of the steps is going to make make it different where I'm able to get along with people?
1: Well, there's, that's a whole other thing. But what I can boil it down to is, first of all, let's clean out in step four. Let's talk about it in step five. Let's look at your, your part in all these various resentments that you have in the, in the fourth columns of your resentment, fourth columns of your fear, and the, the sections inventory. Let's look at that. And then let's look at uh, six and seven. Let's look at eight and nine where we clean up the past. And step 10 says we vigorously commence this way of life as we, w- excuse me, we clean up. Ah, What it says is we commence this way of living, step 10, as we vigorously clean up the past. So as these emotions build up inside of you, you're going to start cleaning them out in steps 10 as you make your amends. But what happens in step 10 is there's some words in there, love and tolerance of others is our code. You have to be able to see, Jan, the destruction and the part you have played in these relationships. And in so doing, you will get a better handle on how to do these various things. And more will be revealed to you. If you are in a situation where all the people are your enemy, then that, that's a whole other thing. That's, you know, that's paranoia. That's a whole other situation there. But the steps, particularly 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then 11 and 12, will put you in better stead with other people. And there are going to be three byproducts of you working the steps. You're going to be right with yourself. You're going to be right with God. And you're going to be right with your fellow human beings. Those are guarantees. You work these steps, you're going to be right with yourself, right with God, and right with your fellow human being. Your whole relationship situation will change. It will change. If it hasn't changed and you're sitting at the other end of this phone thinking, but I am working the steps, something is not happening in your working of the steps. There is something lacking. I hope that does it.
0: Thank you, Jan, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Questions for Harlan? Star 1 to unmute. Mm-hmm. Uh, this
5: mm-hmm. is yeah.
2: Shelly, compulsive over I'd like to ask a question.
0: Your Shelly, name again? A,
3: this
0: is Shelly. 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 Okay. okay, Shelly. Okay. Anyone else? Lisa. Lisa. Okay. Anyone else? Jump in. The water's warm. Jean? Jean. (laughs) Okay, Shelly, your turn. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Harlan. It's really great to hear you
2: speak on this chapter, There is a Solution. And I'm grateful that this program has given me a solution. Um, I still work on uh, emotional sobriety, uh, and, and I... Heard in what you were saying this morning, still having to deal with the mental twist that's triggered with the buildup of the emotions. How do we? How do we? And and I know uh, from what you just mentioned about step ten is this continuous, rigorous working uh, <clears throat> of the steps. How 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 can we better manage uh, this prevention of buildup of emotions? Would you suggest a writing tool? Um, what what would be some better ways work, of work managing? Steps. Work the
1: steps. Work the steps. Work them incessantly. People get this crazy idea that step 10 is something you do in the morning and at night. That's 11. 10s are done all through the day. You'll okay. never hear me talk about tools. You'll hear me talk about steps. I don't need tools. I need the steps. The steps lead me to the mm-hmm. tools, but the tools don't lead me to the steps. I need to absolutely work my steps and if you do step 10 all through the i don't know where you are in your program you may not be up to step 10 i don't know but the bottom line is is that you keep working the steps and that should that should clear it up so with each upheaval or
2: incident absolutely get on that phone
1: absolutely there's a cathedral in every building you'll ever walk into some of them have doors that say men and some of them have doors that say women you can always go in there and make a phone call. It's easier to recover now than it's ever been. There's never been an easier time to recover than right now in the time we're living. You can get in touch with people. I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm guilty. I'm, I'm whatever. Here's what's happening. And if they know the program, they can help you find your part. They can take you through. Are you What's your, what's your part? Is it selfish? Dishonest? Self-seeking? Fear, what is, anger, fear, what is your part in this? And then we can ask God to remove the defects. We can discuss it with another person. We can make amends if we've harmed anybody, clean it up immediately, and resolutely turn your thoughts to someone you can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And it's just, it's that quick. It's never been easier to recover than it is today with our cell phones. You can get in touch with somebody who knows the book. Now, if you're going to get in touch with somebody and say, I'm angry at my boss, and the person at the other end says, well, your boss is a jerk, that's not going to help you. You have to find your part. When there is a disturbance, it is a disturbance within you. And we all do it. And we're here to help you, Shelly. You call me anytime on
0: a 10-step call. Anytime. Thank you, Shelly, for the question. Lisa, your turn. Lisa, star one to unmute. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, sorry about
4: that. I was chatting away there. Um, Thank you. First of all, thank you so very much um, um, for the service of doing this and also for all who are on the call. I think my question um was just answered um by your response to Shelley. Um I've been in the program today is my nine year anniversary. Um, Congratulations. Been, thank you very much. I'm very I, I I I keep coming back and that's the one thing I do. Um I've had a lot of um a lot of relapse. um, um and my my question was, I, I feel often like I'm in the situation, I can't remember the exact story, but it's the guy in the big book who sits down to get the sandwich and the glass of milk um, and then decides, well, maybe I could just put a little whiskey in my milk. Um, and that's and Jim. Jim. okay. I find that often it seems completely reasonable to me and I mm-hmm. get this amnesia. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, but what I just heard you say was um, make a call, and that's the one thing I don't do.
6: Yeah.
4: Oh. And, and it's the one thing I don't do. And the minute I heard you say that, I thought, oh, because I thought it was all about, um, well, I could write, I could talk to God. I, I'm an introvert. I don't like talking that much. But I don't call people very often, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. maybe that's the key for me.
1: I think I think it is, and I don't like talking to people that much either. I would <laughs> rather be watching ESPN right now. I would rather have somebody in the other room going, hold it down out there, chubby. I'm still trying to sleep. I wish I had somebody in the other. You know, there's other things I'd like to be doing, like counting my millions or whatever it is, or driving my (laughs) Rolls Royce or whatever. But you have to do what you have to do if you're going to recover. And I've learned to turn my life inside out. We all have to do a lot of things we don't like to do. But you know what? I don't like weighing 700 pounds. I don't like having a size 80-inch waist. I don't like being a size 7 extra large shirt, and I can't even close that. I don't like having towels shoved between layers of flab. I don't like breaking furniture. I don't like being laughed at in public and having children point at me and laughing. I don't like being the object of ridicule. I don't like being able to uh, to know that I can't, I can't walk. I, I can't walk. My thighs are so... The rubbing together of the thighs has created so much pain in my life that I can't bear it anymore. I don't like those things. So at some point, I have to make a choice. What is it you don't like more? But when the pain of the food outweighs the fear of letting the food go, recovery can take place. But you're going to have to decide what's your bottom. I can't decide that for you. And if you've hit your bottom, and it doesn't sound like you have, If you hit your bottom, you will pick up that phone so quick you'd think you were ordering a pizza in your illness. I have to do what I have to do to make a living. I have to do what I have to do to recover. I have to do whatever it is. I have to do what I have to do. And so do you. So you have your answer. You know the answer. I'm just going to reaffirm. You're absolutely right. Lisa, if you don't call beforehand and you don't have somebody you can check in with, you are going to continue to compulsively overeat. And this is mind over matter. The illness does not mind killing you, and you don't matter. (sighs)
0: Sorry. I hope that answers it.
6: Thanks, Lisa. Jean, your turn. Hi, Howan.
5: Hi, Jean. This is Jean from
6: Boston. Um, I think I might have talked to you before. I was you sitting here this morning crying. Um, I have, I've been abstinent and living this program a day at a time for almost 30 years.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: But I didn't get here until I was 50, so I'm old. But it's like, I have a grandson um, who was in this disease.
7: Mm-hmm. And
6: uh, a granddaughter, too, God bless her. And uh, But my grandson is my first born grandchild, and he's my heart. Mm-hmm. And... Um, people. It's not him I have a problem. I love him no matter what size he is. He knows what I do. He knows what I've done since the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to let him alone, but it's other people that I can't handle that think I'm supposed to magically do something for him because I did it for me. Mm
5: -hmm. And,
6: um, of course, you know, I would like to tell them, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, you know, like I was crying this morning. For For me, myself, because I'm so short and I was I was 180 pounds, I remember all those bleeding thighs and all those things you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just wondering if you have any idea what, if anything, I can respond to this.
1: You can do three things. Now listen to me, Jean, because these are three important things. You can recover yourself, you can recover yourself, and you can recover yourself. <laughs> And those are the three things you can do for your grandson and for those people. Recover, recover, and recover. I wish I had a better answer. That's the
7: no, best I, answer I, I got.
6: I, I, no, that's the answer. But you know, it's hard when you love somebody so much and you and but he's all right with himself. I would pop a few Al-Anon meetings in there too. Okay, I, would,
1: I wouldn't. I wouldn't be adverse to going to a few Al-Anon meetings because when. Someone else's recovery is more important to you than it is to them. That is the allanotic condition in its active form.
0: Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Jean. Thank you very much. Okay, last invitation for questions for Harlan at this time. So if you have a question for Harlan, star one to unmute and identify Nancy. yourself, please. Repeat Nancy. your name, Nancy. Jen. Jen, I have a question for Harlan. Yes, um, I have a question regarding... Wait, well, hold on, hold on, hold oh, on, Jen. Sorry. One moment. Anyone else? Maggie. Maggie. Okay, did I catch everybody? Oh, Susan. And Susan. Okay, let's start with Nancy. We're going to go Nancy, Jen, Maggie, Susan. Nancy, you're <clears throat> Thank you. Hi, Harlan. This is Nancy G. So good to hear from you. Hi, Um, Nancy. Harlan, Harlan, um, can you repeat what you just said to the last question uh, about Al-Anon? If if you said something like if you – I didn't hear it. If you – if you – I don't really want to get into
1: an – Al-Anon is really an outside issue. I probably shouldn't have mentioned it. But if someone else's recovery is more important to you than it is to them, that is that condition in its active form.
0: That is a what condition?
1: That, con- that is the Alanonic condition in its active form. Oh,
0: okay, 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 sorry. Okay, that, that's all. That's all. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Nancy. Jen?
5: Hi, good morning. Um, I just have a question about the last part of step 10, where we resolutely right. turn our attention to help others. How do you, mm-hmm. what do you do, Harlan, after you 10-step? What are the things? Make
1: an you do? outreach call. Make an outreach call. You know somebody that's struggling. You know somebody in your meetings that's new. There's meeting lists. If you know no one, you can go online today, which they couldn't do in 1935. You can go online and look up people on a phone list in a remote city and say, Hi, I'm Jen. I just did a 10-step. Or I'm Jen. I want to just know how you're doing. It's, it's much easier to recover today than it's ever been. It's, it's ever been. Just check Thank in with somebody. Do you know somebody in the hospital that's ill? Check in with them. Maggie's up next.
0: Thank you, Jen. Maggie, you're right, Harlan.
1: Maggie,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maggie, your turn.
7: Yes, um, I have a question for Harlan. And um, you know, um, you know, the big book talks about having that psychic change. Mm-hmm. Isn't it our thinking that God must change first, rather than our emotions that are controlling us?
1: Give it to me one more time, Maggie. What is it? What did you say? I'm just saying, you know, like
7: the Bible talks about having that psychic change. Uh
1: huh.
2: So I'm wondering,
7: You know, I'm wondering, isn't it our thinking that God must change first by working the twelve steps, rather than
1: our emotions that are controlling us? I'm not understanding the question. You're asking but, me, relative to the psychic change, isn't it true that God must change first?
7: I'm no, I'm saying, want, no, I'm uh, saying that God, God must change our thinking, you know, by working the 12 steps, you know, we, we get the psychic change. Right. So what I'm saying, isn't there our thinking, like you talk about, you talk about like our we're controlled by our emotions. Isn't it our thinking? You know, I've heard that all emotions are born of thoughts. So isn't
1: it our thinking rather than our emotions? Um, If that works for you, great. I'm good with it. You know, emotions, thinking. What's going to happen is once I have that psychic change, I'm not going to want the food anymore. And that's the result I'm really looking for. So whether you want to call guilt, shame, remorse, fear, dishonesty, jealousy, whether you want to call those thinking or you want to call those emotions, I'm good as long as you work the steps. Those things, those ideas, will not build to the level where they will drive you irresistibly into the food. So, if you want to call them whatever, and you're working the steps and you're free of the food, you're fine.
0: Thank you, Maggie. And Susan, you'll be our last question this morning.
5: Oh yes, thank you, thank you so much, Harlan. Um, I just wanted to ask you. Um, I want to get a sponsor, but I I guess.
1: I guess what? What happened, here?
0: Susan? I think we lost you here. Star one to unmute. We'll get her back, Harlan. Okay. Could I ask Carlin something? Well, hold on, hold on, Mary. Hold on, let's wait for Susan, please. Susan, star one to unmute.
5: Oh, do you hear me?
0: Sure. Now we do. Oh,
5: Okay. Okay. There's, some people say there's two different ways to do it, like to come into the OA and like, you know, even if you're not abstinent, you know, sit in and listen and, you know, um... This you'll get the steps will get you'll get the steps, and then you, you know you'll lose the food, the obsessive, um, compulsive uh feeling to overeat. Um, and then other people like work like, oh, you have to stop eating, like when you mm-hmm. come in. And, I don't know where um, the
1: other part the other thinking comes from. I really don't, Susan. The big book is very clear you have to put down the food. You are not going to be able to work the steps if you're drunk. And when I'm eating Kit Kat bars or I'm eating ice cream, I'm drunk. I am not in touch with any feelings. I'm not in touch with anything. I Mm -hmm. must put the food down. If you want to come to meetings and you're still eating, come. But this is not a program of osmosis. You're not going to sit there in the meeting and have it come up through your tushy And all of a sudden, you're going to be struck abstinent. You're not going to hear anything in a meeting that's going to help you stay on your diet. I have to put down the food. And I have to put it down for a couple of days and let that allergy clear out. And then I must work the steps. But that doesn't mean that in those couple of days, I don't go to meetings. I encourage people, go to meetings. Say nothing. Take the cotton out of your ears. Shove it in your mouth. Listen. But this is not a program of ambiguity where you can do it this way or you can do it... Dr. Silkworth says the only solution we have to suggest is entire abstinence. That means I've got to put down the food. If you go to the other program, AA, ask them how many of them are drunk and drinking where they work the steps. Doesn't happen. You've got to plug the jug. But sometimes you have to plug the jug.
5: Mm. Well, I ju- I just would like to say that I I know some people that come and they're supposed to be abstinent, but they tell their sponsor that they're abstinent, but they're not because they they fear that the sponsor will. I know leave
1: them. some of those same people, and I look in the mirror at one every day that did that for a very long time. I did that for a very long time. I'm just as human as the next person, and I did not want to let go of my food. I also had a program that I devised. It's the I'm going to eat anything and everything I want to on the weekends, but I'm going to be abstinent five days a week program. That was a flop. That was a failure. I'm going to eat everything I want to on my birthday and then get back the next day, and be, that's a flop too. So at some point, I either want to do this or I don't. I would see page 58. It says, if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. I'm not going to sit and make deals with people. I'm not going to sit and and negotiate with people. They either want to do this or they don't. Mm -hmm.
0: I don't negotiate.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Harlan, for your generous service. Thanks to everybody Thank who asked a question this morning. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. I'm going to close from page 164 in our big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive Hold on, Mary. We're going to get to you after the recording. Uh, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little.